If there's ever a time where we needed to pull together as believers of Christ and, and unite and try to strengthen and make the world a better place, it's now. Mm-hmm. And that, that sounds like he's yeah. preaching our message. <laughs> there's one body, one church, one spirit, one hope. The realities of the faith, the ra- realities that unify us are already there. Christ praying for unity. What should we be praying for? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the one prayer request of Jesus. Think about it in the Bible that we actually have a say in whether or not it comes to fruition or not. I think in what God has done in you guys in uh, in this podcast and the, the multitude of folks that you're reaching, the diversity, whatever God intended when, he's, when you started this, he's able to bring it to completion. Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll, here with the other co-host, TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Hey. Uh, we are also here with Professor Moreland, who is filling in for Sister Rose. If you heard us announce Sister Rose was going to be on, he's filling in for her. And we just did a bonus episode with him yesterday. You guys can check out if you want to know more about him. Definitely worth listening to. We had a pretty interesting talk, I thought. And we're also here with Father Jonathan, who made a guest appearance on that bonus episode. He's also been on episode 28. And he has was on episode 50 when we did our celebration that we made it to 50 episodes. Um, and also you may have know his name from some puns that he's answered for silly questions that we shared or some of, uh, his real thoughtful answers in our, uh, think tank segment and our dividing scripture series. So, uh, thank you so much for all your contributions. Uh, thank you, professor Moreland for filling in for sister Rose for us. Um, today, what we're going to be talking about is sort of how the Protestant church, which me and TJ will kind of be representing, uh, as well as the Catholic Church that uh, Professor Moreland will represent, and the Orthodox Church, Father Jonathan is a priest of. And uh, we're going to just be talking about how these three branches relate today and how we can best have overall church unity, which if there was ever a challenge of a topic, today's will be it. Um, Just kind of want to review some of our audience's engagement on social media. Um, We got a lot of questions when we asked for Monday and Monday what your favorite water bottle was. And... uh, I just don't have the time to go over all of them. I will say that I was impressed that we managed to get equal amount of people saying Fiji water and soda were tied Hmm. and soda was not an option. So that that was pretty impressive. We did a poll and we did not list soda, but you know, so uh, if y'all are curious uh, what kind of people are listening now, now you know, um, (laughs) Uh, so we always like to start with a silly question, and today's is going to be, we just we want to know, and me and TJ will answer first, give you time to think about it. What would be your go-to weapon of choice in a breakfast-only food fight? Uh, TJ, did you want to answer that first, or did you want me to? I can. All right, go for it. Uh, so it really depends on your definition of breakfast food, because you can eat whatever you want for breakfast. Uh, and yeah. you know, in America, we eat eggs for breakfast. In like Japan, they eat eggs all the time. Uh, it's whatever. Uh, I'm gonna go with frozen waffles. Well, because uh, I can uh, throw. Yeah, that's something. I can, yeah, I can throw really hard. Just get a box of frozen waffles, start slinging them. Uh, you know. Yeah, I think okay. I, it's just frozen Eggo waffles. Seems like all the right. most effective one for me. Well then, yeah. What about you? Um, I'm I'm so torn. I feel like there's so many good answers here, but I'm gonna go with uh, some nice hot cheesy grits. 
Mm. And, you know, I feel like it'd be really messy. It's the kind of thing that'll absolutely get stuck in your nose or like your facial hair or something. Um, Father Jonathan will not be happy with me. We'll be devastated. <laughs> so that's uh, that's going to be my go-to weapon of choice for a breakfast-only food fight. Uh, um, Professor Moreland, would you like to answer this one first? Sure. I'd say a scone because they're sharp and pointy. Mm-hmm. That's Plus, if you they break, you get all the the feeling everywhere. Yeah. All right, Father Jonathan. So I, I, I've given this quite a bit of thought, and although <laughs> I don't not uh, frozen waffles, waffles are my favorite. And I was thinking of what you would put on them to make them extra special. And I thought I love when they put powdered sugar on your yeah. waffles, and I would say powdered sugar because it would probably cause quite a bit of devastation, blind people for a short period of time, maybe get in someone's lungs, throw off their uh, their aim. Uh, I'm mostly a pacifist, so I'll be trying to uh, avoid the most amount of uh, destruction, but it might uh, it might uh, stop everything in its tracks. That was a fantastic answer. Oh, man. Well, I appreciate you guys doing that with us. Um, all right. So, um, uh, Professor Moreland, we we just talked to you last episode. If they want to catch up with what's going on in your life, I suggest everybody listen to that. But, uh, Father Jonathan, it's been about nine months since you've been on, on the show with us. Uh, how have you been since last July? <laughs> It's been uh, quite a journey. Um, I, we've done quite a bit of uh, an online presence at the parish because of the pandemic. We're starting to open up. Uh, we're still following kind of a stricter guideline than what's uh, required of us as a church, but it's allowed us to uh, start opening some of our ministries, which is in occupying my time. Uh, like uh, been able to get out to see parishioners. Uh, I got both my doses of the vaccine, so I feel a little more comfortable being with some of our older parishioners uh, at their cool. homes and and being with them. Uh, we're still doing services regularly, doing a, a lot of on like I said, a lot of online ministries. Which actually, because of the location of our parish in Uptown, not everyone lives in that area, so it actually makes it easier. We might continue doing some of our ministries online. So it's been a nice learning experience. Uh, personally, just staying busy, um, spending a lot of time reading and uh, trying to find a hobby that I can do uh, <laughs> to occupy my time, going a lot of walks with my dog. And uh, other than Beautiful that, just, dog. Um, thank you. Thank you. She's a, she's a sweetheart. You should um, try baking. Baking is a great hobby. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've not mastered baking. I, I can do cooking. I'm I'm, I'm self sufficient in that, but I, I never bake right. And uh, it might be the next thing. Yeah, uh, TJ's been stuck alone at my house for while. I had to work a couple of times. It uh, it just came home and there was a loaf of bread. It's <laughs> like, oh, okay. I like making bread. Uh, but uh, so we wanted to ask you both about some of the major differences between our churches. Uh, there are many reasons for the Great Schism that started in the you know 1050s. Uh, one, we think many of our listeners, primarily Pentecostal believers, uh, might be interested in, was the disagreement over the filioque clause. I hope I said that right. Uh, we covered that in episode 75, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's basically the disagreement over whether the Holy Spirit is sent from God or God and Jesus, uh, for ordinary lay people, why do they care who sent the Holy Spirit? 
and uh, I'll let Chris go first because he's he's beside me on the thing. Not a problem. So in the Catholic Church, we believe that theology is the queen of the sciences. And the more that we know about God and the more we know about the nature of the Holy Trinity, the more we know about everything else. And so it's very much in line with our Hellenistic heritage um, that, you know, we put God first and we try to get what's right about God first before moving on to other things. So, you know, the filioque issue is very important. However, it's something that as a lay person, I believe should be left up to professional theologians and the hierarchy of both the Catholic and the Orthodox Church, something that could be done at an ecumenical council. Both John Paul II and Benedict XVI has said that the filioque clause is open for uh, debate. It's open for interpretation. I would say that, yes, it's an impediment to unity. It's something that can be dealt with. But on a day-to-day basis, it is not something that Catholics and Orthodox are are wrestling over on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And Father Jonathan? I think I would concur with all of that, particularly because this is an issue of uh, theological significance. You know, it's an edit, uh, it's an edit of a a conciliar decree, uh, that is not agreed upon in the, the universal church, the, the churches east and west. So it'd be something that would, uh, no matter what, at least at our level would, um, be needed to be dealt with at at an ecumenical, uh, uh, ecumenical council. Uh, and we're still struggling for, you know, basic unity in a lot of other areas as well. But um, I, I would I would concur with on the day to day level, um, it wouldn't affect the average person. Perhaps uh, it would uh, have some effect on uh, how one understands the Holy Spirit. So if there, if you're in a tradition that uh, gives uh, a little more priority in your articulations of uh of pneumatology, of spirituality, of, of the theology of the Holy Spirit, then uh, there might be some uh, greater issue because uh, in some cases, some interpretations of the filioque clause might uh, subordinate the Holy Spirit and make it less co-equal with the Father and the Son. Uh, and that would be one of the issues uh, at hand from an Orthodox perspective, an Eastern uh, Christian, Eastern Orthodox perspective uh, on, on the topic of the, of the Holy Spirit and its relationship in the Trinity. Okay, so it it sounds like you're both saying it it do, really doesn't matter to your lay people, maybe more toward your theologians. Is that am I getting that right? I would say that I would say that any Catholic or member of the Orthodox Church that has a rudimentary understanding of the faith is aware of the issue. But it's not something that they're going to put on the front burner. It's something that's, you know, in the background, and we're not going to let that distract us from dealing with other issues that we can deal with on a day-to-day basis and at a more elementary level. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also say a lot of, oftentimes uh, people are, are somewhat more concerned with uh, personal and communal spirituality and certainly practical issues, especially ethics, um, ethics and morality. And so on those levels, I mean, there, there might be some, uh, some theological, 
disagreements that could lead to ethical differences uh, or practical differences uh, that might affect people on the on the uh, grassroots level or on the ground level, the average layperson. Um, but I don't think these. Uh, I mean, the only time I see it come up in my general conversation is a point of attack uh, from someone who may misunderstand the disagreement uh, about the filio que. And so, if there are people that are slightly more learned uh, uh, in in their theological training, um, it might be more of an issue for them, and so it might affect uh, the way that they practice their faith, or at least the way that they relate to others uh, from the, uh, from another confession. Um, but I, I would say, uh, most of my encounters with the average layperson, that hasn't been a, a major. Um, a major issue that and that they struggle with in day to day life. Okay. All right. Gotcha. So we um we talked some about in, in episode seventy five. We kind of explained why it was important at that time, and what we kind of gave sort of the Protestant idea of what was going on with that. And um, people want to check it out. They can go there and check it out. But uh, since you guys are saying there are other issues that are more elementary. Maybe we should talk about those. Uh, what are some of the more elemental differences that we can, as lay people, address? Uh, Father Jonathan, did you have any ideas with that? So I would say um, the average person uh, would engage in their religious life, their their spiritual life, primarily at the level of uh, of worship. Um, I mean, that would be a starting point. Um, certainly our liturgical practice is, uh, post, post Vatican II has, has differed quite a bit. Uh, we tend to have a, a somewhat more traditional, uh, traditional in the sense that we, we have a liturgy that bears a lot of the resemblance to the early church's, uh, worship practices, communal worship practices. Uh, some of the forms still exist. We certainly have a, a Byzantine veneer on it. It's been cultivated over, uh, you know, the better part of 1700 years, um, in, in the forms that we have today. Um, and so on that level, there might be some more uh, difficulty. Um, someone might, someone from an Orthodox perspective might walk into a Catholic church and find some of it unrecognizable. I, who have a little more background in liturgy, even post Vatican II liturgical practice seems familiar to me because I can see the underlying, um, underlying practices that are, are that are still present uh but that might make it difficult for people to relate and it might cause um potential for um more conflict over uh over the differences uh certainly the the tridentine mass or the uh or the byzantine catholic mass uh, or the liturgy would be the, would, the Byzantine Catholic liturgy would be the same. Um, and the, uh, and the Tridentine Mass would be a lot more similar to the, uh, to the Orthodox liturgy. And so I think, uh, in more traditional spheres, people that are, are more oriented in the Catholic Church towards a, a traditional approach to spirituality, Christian life and practice, uh, it might be less, uh, but then at the same time, there's many Orthodox Christians who on a day in, day out basis are not practicing uh their faith uh as actively as they could uh given their context i mean we're not expecting everyone to be like me and do liturgies almost every day <laughs> or, or something or or, yeah. or or like the monasteries that have multiple services a day 
but liturgical practice might be a starting point um, uh, for some challenges. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Dr. Moreland for a little bit more uh, from his perspective, because I'd like to get his, his input too. Um, I couldn't agree further. I think that the liturgy as currently practiced in some areas, not all, but certain areas in um, contemporary period after Vatican II is a major impediment to ecumenicism. Um, that is something that is an ongoing problem. Um, and we were seeing a lot of development in that area during the reign of Benedict XVI. Uh, the church always has shifting priorities, and the priorities have really shifted away from uh, liturgical reform, it seems, um, which I think is unfortunate. I do think it's an impediment to Catholic Orthodox uh, ecumenicism. Uh, interestingly enough, though, um, in the post-Vatican II liturgy, it actually made the liturgy far more accessible to Protestants. So especially Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, they would find um, the post-Vatican II Mass, as it is currently celebrated in some places, to be remarkably similar, to be remarkably similar to their services in their own denominations. In terms of some other challenges, um, and I say this as Father Jonathan knows, with all respect intended, because I've heard it from members of your church that this is an issue, uh, the issue of ethno-nationalism. So um, the West has maybe gone a little too far in the separation between church and state or between ethnicity and religion. Um I think there are some very pressing concerns that were mentioned. If I, if I'm not, if correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but I think they were mentioned as early as like the 1870s about what happens when you conflate your ethnic and national identity too strongly with your religious identity. So I think that's a, I think that is an issue that's going to have to be dealt with. We've seen some elements of that even within Catholicism particularly before the Second Vatican Council, so maybe that could provide a pattern for overcoming it. I, I am aware that there are some issues of, um, there are some other theological issues. Substitu substitutionary atonement is another issue. I think it's, I think that that's also something that should probably be dealt with at a higher level. Um, other than that, I would say that, yes, there are some disagreements on the way the church should be structured and organized. Again, um, that can be, that is an issue for people higher up. So, just a few questions before. I, I'm sure Father Jonathan has some things he wants to say to that. Um, so first, we, you was the benzene mass and uh, I the, can't remember. You said there was two different ones, right? Yes, there's the um, in the Catholic Church, um, there is actually an entire section of the Catholic Church that does the same liturgy. It's the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom that the Eastern Orthodox do in the that's the, that's, that's the it's it's been called the Byzantine Rite. It's more it's okay. more appropriately the liturgy okay. of Saint John. So that's the one that's more kind of in line with Orthodox, and then you kind of did a more reformed or modern liturgy that's closer so to that modern. That difference um, is a different liturgy. This is the Roman Rite, the Roman liturgy, and the Roman liturgy um, as it is currently practiced is split into two forms. The ordinary form, 
or the Novus Ordo Mass, which was promulgated after the Second Vatican Council. And yes, it would look a little more reformed, I would say, or a little more Protestant. And before that, we had what was called the Tridentine Mass, which was promulgated at the Council of Trent and would be more recognizable to someone from the Byzantine um, or from the East. Um, and it was, but the Tridentine Mass itself had had really had very few differences to some extent from what we know as the pre-Tridentine Mass, the Mass that people in the West were celebrating for as long as we can remember. It got rid of a lot of like regional, regional eccentricities and things like that. It streamlined it, but there was much more continuity. Okay, gotcha. I was just trying to catch up on some terms and stuff. So I'm also a, a little confused. You said that it's possible that the West Church has gone too far in separating ethnicity and church. How can you go too far separating nation and church? My take on that would be that we have a responsibility, I think, to uphold legitimate authorities. We also have a responsibility to our families, to our neighborhoods, our cities, state, okay, and then to our country. Um, we, of course, love everyone, you know, and we're called to have, you know, love. But there is also, there can be something very holy also about recognizing um, the sort of unique spiritual uh, contributions of your homeland or your country. Yeah, okay. I think uh, I, I, the the point that I gleaned out of that is, is we would say that the, the truth of the gospel would incarnate in every uh, local community. And we are each unique and unrepeatable persons and we're members of unique and unrepeatable communities uh, at each given moment in time throughout history. And so to, to divorce totally from your present context is also something that would go too extreme. If we try to, to land it out so much that it's just kind of uh, the same everywhere, we lose the uniqueness of a particular culture. And what's beautiful when it's done right, the uniqueness in the Orthodox churches will have, you know, Russian Orthodoxy, which is the same, but it's different also than Greek Orthodoxy, than Syrian Orthodoxy, uh, than, um, you know, uh, an Orthodoxy in, in the mission field, where they take on certain characters, uh, of the, of the, of the culture in which the church incarnates into. The challenge that was brought up, though, is we can very easily, particularly in the diaspora, where uh, we find ourselves here in America, we we form a degree of um, ethno-nationalism, where we where we conflate uh, the the faith uh, with our religion with our cultural identity. I don't think we can divorce our faith from the cultural identity that we have. But then you start to see people like, oh, you're not Greek, you should be somewhere else, or you're not Russian, you should be somewhere else. Um, and that's problematic. And that was not just like something that was discussed in the, the 19th century. It was deemed a heresy at a, at a uh, Eastern Council. It's called the heresy of ethnophilism, which is um, like a tribalism based on, uh, and as so you can't establish a church, it's, it's a heresy in the East uh, to establish a church on national lines. Um, and there was an issue in Constantinople at the time. Uh, I think it was a Bulgarian uh, group of people within the city um, trying to formulate their own uh, localized community um, 
based on this uh, ethno-national. Uh, it wouldn't be national because there was a nation states at the time in the same way, at least in the in the uh, that region. Um, but that that was the that was kind of the, the context in which that happened, and that that becomes problematic. And I think having a, a middle ground where you don't go into either extreme, you you celebrate the uniqueness of every culture, but you don't pri- uh, you don't elevate culture uh, above the gospel, and and so you have to you have to have a proper balance between the two, and that is something that would be problematic. Particularly amongst the average person in, a, in many of the Orthodox, uh, many Orthodox churches, uh, we still haven't seen in the nearly two two and a half centuries of us being here in the United States. We haven't seen an indigenous Orthodoxy. It doesn't mean indigenous like, uh, like the, the First Nations yeah. people, but indigenous like a, a, a culturally diverse Orthodoxy in America. Even the Orthodox Church in America, which is one of our jurisdictions here in the U.S., is still very Russian in, in the way that it conducts itself. It's still pra- it, 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 you, if you weren't listening to the language, you you would assume that you're at a Russian church and you're at a, an Orthodox Church in America church. So yeah, so I, I think this is a this is a good one to to look at, and this will be my last question. I know TJ has a few things he wants to ask as well, um, because I, I do see this as something that the Protestant the Catholic and the Orthodox Church can all kind of look at as, hey, this is this is a problem for all of us, right? Um, you know, obviously there are a lot of American evangelicals who kind of conflate their identity with being an American, you know, whatever politics they decide to inflate it with. It happens all the time, at least for our, from my point of view. Um, how can, just looking at this kind of issue, how can addressing that help address unity for our churches? Uh, Professor Moreland, would you like to maybe give an idea on that? Well, I think that we are all sharing, you know, we're all dealing on a day-to-day basis with some of some issues in our culture um, that are really affecting people. And I think that a way to do that is that we need to present a more united front uh, on those issues, and we can maybe disagree on, and we should disagree on strategies, but we should agree on the telos. We should agree on the end goal that we are going to stand against some of the things that we are seeing in this culture. And that, um, you know, whether it is like what you mentioned, the conflation of uh, American identity with religion, that is a, that is a concern. Uh, we're also have concerns about hedonistic consumerist or materialism and the emerging threat of intersectional Marxism. Hmm. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of mindset. Well, not just that. I mean, the gospel, we all share the same savior who loves us dearly and we are committed to the gospel and living that out on a day-to-day basis. And the gospel is the my take on the gospel is if the gospel is not annoying you and needling you, whether you are Republican or Democrat, right, left, or center, if it's not if it's not making you think twice about something, then then you need to get back and start reading the gospels again. And I think that you know everyone has been like, well, maybe it's this political party or that political party, and I'm looking at both of them and saying, no, this does not represent. Neither one represents a Christian gospel perspective on what mm-hmm. society here should be 
should be organized or functioning like or the values that we want to uphold. Right. I've uh, I've actually seen the American Solidarity Party picking up traction with some of my Catholic yeah. Orthodox friends. They've got some interesting stances. Uh, the one I like the most is anti-light pollution. Huge uh, fan of that policy, which they decided yeah. was a big enough issue to include it in their platform. But, uh, you know. So. I would add on to that that we are really... We, we have really suffered in the United States from not experiencing the phenomenon known as Christian democracy, which is a Western post-war Western European uh, democratic tradition that combines um, a pretty staunch, a pretty pro-religious attitude, uh, pro-military, pro-police, um, and upholds Western values, upholds the values of of essentially first world nations, but also is dedicated to social welfare and the betterment of, of humanity through things like uh, subsidized or free healthcare, subsidized or free education, pensions. Um, it's really the Christian response to the challenges posed by Marxism, which in the Industrial Revolution very legitimate challenges, and we're seeing some of them reemerge today. So, you know, there are answers out there, but they never took root in the United States, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, um, Father Jonathan, did you have anything you wanted to add before we move on? Uh, you guys might just settle our problems with politics in America right here. <laughs> I think the the we we should lean into that idea of of. Those places of convergence, um, the shared gospel, the shared savior, uh, and uh, hopefully an understanding of a prophetic witness that we are meant to have. Um, we are we are called to prophetically critique societies that we live in. We, uh, if we witness something that is contrary to the ethics of the kingdom, uh, to the gospel, and it is our uh, our task to bear witness. Now, to what degree uh, we do that, it's, you know, it, it, you know, it's each individual person, each individual community, confessions, or responsibility to determine what that is. But when you look at a major issue, how beautiful is it when all of us who are represent very different traditions can, can stand united on a particular issue and, and speak the truth and love on that issue. Um, when we see it as a, as a prophetic imperative to do so, uh, to, to, to offer uh, a word from the kingdom uh, to the societies in which we find ourselves. Um, and I think those are areas of convergence, and that's where, where we, can, we can see uh, ethics. Uh, we can find uh, cohesion in ethics. We can find cohesion uh, in certain uh, practical expressions of our faith, like charity um, and, uh, and working together on that. Uh, I know that uh, just as a practical example, in, I was in Atlanta for uh, for uh, a little bit uh, before I got ordained. I was serving as a lay assistant at a cathedral in Atlanta, and uh, and we recognized that uh, there this was a jurisdictional difference, but we we were located at, at a place that wasn't good for outreach to those in need uh, in poverty, but there was another Orthodox church that was, and they would serve uh, food. To, at, uh, every day of the year, multiple times a day, uh, to those in need. Except on two days, because the Catholic Church was much more organized on Thanksgiving and on Christmas. 
And so they would, uh, rather than try to compete or do something, they already had a system in place to serve in those, uh, on those two days. And so they took the resources that they had uh, and provided them to the Catholic Church, seeing it as a, a, a shared task of caring for those in need, uh, within the city of Atlanta. And, uh, and recognizing that it, this is the church's mission, the church's call, um, even when we disagree on what perhaps what church means or what we disagree on, on, on what the, uh, what authority is, is, is most appropriate where, um, we can agree that all of us are called by the gospel to, uh, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, uh, welcome the stranger, visit the, the sick and those in prison. We should be doing those actions together. Um, Amen. And, and I think that's those are places where we can find unity. And in those interactions, I think we, we might eventually talk about this. In those interactions, we can destigmatize in our minds other Christian traditions that we might uh, we might have misconceptions about. Very oftentimes, I, I find that uh, there there are Protestants that have misconceptions about the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, and Orthodox have misconceptions about the Catholic Churches, the Church and the Protestant Churches. Um, and, and the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and, and the Protestant churches. And so actually knowing someone and meeting someone who's living their faith and interacting on a grassroots level, I mean, that's how we're going to have the relational connections to have a stake in the game for unity. Because if it's just these ideas and ideologies, we're not, there's no, there's no personal relationship to it. But when it's us all together and we've developed a relationship over the, over the last couple of years, and um, and, and and Dr. Moreland, uh, Professor Moreland, I'm getting to know you just a little bit. We had an email exchange back and forth, and um, and we are uh, and, and through this, we have a stake in this this conversation, just like the beautiful uh, uh, Facebook page that we have, where we're interacting and sharing ideas and going back and forth. We have a face to put to this story of a particular tradition, um, rather than this you know, monolith that probably doesn't exist anyways, because it's not really what any church teaches or believes. Yeah. Yeah. So as we work together, we kind of see these misconceptions sort of peel away. Um, would, would be one way of rewording what you're both saying, maybe, and you guys can tell me if th this would work or um, maybe we should argue less about which part of the body goes where and what the body looks like and just be the body every now and then. Is that a good way to word that? As long as we are recognizing that a lot of we times need none of us, body. none of us are very good at being the body right. yeah. uh, <laughs> in our day to day life and recognizing that uh, to be the body is to sometimes be an alien in the midst of the world and, uh, uh, and to, and to commit to the, the, the radical nature of what we are called to be as Christians. Um, uh, sure. and, uh, and strive to do all things in love. Right. For sure. I would agree with Father Jonathan. We're not just a glorified social welfare agency. <laughs> yeah. The gospel is also pretty much the biggest part of that. And that's something I think we all uh, we all agree on spreading the gospel. And that's uh, part of being the bodies. Hey, everyone. We just want to take a quick break to let you know all the many ways that you could support the Whole Church Podcast. Hey, on... hey Josh, that's going to take too long. Uh, okay. Well, could you list all the ways that you can think of for mm -hmm. them to support us in 10 seconds or less? Yeah. Uh, subscribe to the show wherever you listen. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Support us on Patreon. Our cash app is in the show notes. Subscribe to the newsletter. 
and rate the episode. All right. Yeah, that, that sounds and good share to the episode. I guess we should let them get back to it. Then. Mm-hmm. All right. Y'all enjoy. All right. So there are differences in our canonized scriptures. Uh, all three of our churches, I think. Uh, but for, you know, we don't have the Apocrypha in our Bible. It's not a part of our readings. Uh, if you ask me to name the five, I think it's five. I don't even know how many books are in the Apocrypha. But if you ask me to name them, I would not be able to do it <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Well, also, uh, my understanding is that uh, the Catholic Church just calls it part of the Old Testament. So I don't think uh, I, I, if I had to wager a guess, probably a lot of people who are Catholic would say, what do you mean Apocrypha? <laughs> because you know it's just that's just the bible and uh i believe uh, father jonathan told us before that the orthodox church has a different name for it uh, well it, there's a name that we go by which is uh, or, or describing the literature it's called anaginaskomena which just means uh, profitable for reading um but we don't distinguish it from our canon it's actually placed much like the catholic church right in yeah. the different sections of the of the old testament text yeah. um and that uh, we do have apocrypha but our apocrypha are, are don't include those books. Those books for us uh, are not considered apocrypha. We don't call them deuterocanonical sometimes. And deuterocanonical, I'll, I'll let uh, Professor Moreland <laughs> speak about this, but it doesn't mean that they're second of second tier. It just means it was established as like a, a more uh, specific portion of the canon second at another time. Yeah, but it's from the earliest church when the when the uh, when the church. Uh, was meeting to discuss what books of the scripture were consistent with the received tradition. Um, the, these books were all included, um, and some yeah. of them under the title of, of good for or profitable for reading. Um, and we have uh, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church share the same books. Our numbering places us at 49 books. Um, Versus 46 in the Catholic Church, but we divide the letter of uh, Jeremiah and Baruch into two. So we really only huh. differ on two books. We include Third Maccabees, uh, and we also include uh, uh, First Ezra. Um, yeah, that's weird. What I just learned is that the Catholic Church doesn't include the Third Maccabees. I've been reading it thinking y'all did. Yes, it, it's not actually there. A fascinating <laughs> book. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just no, blew my mind. Yeah, so, uh, but those differences in our canonized scripture, uh, how do they impact our different doctrines like purgatory, uh, Abraham's bosom, and, uh, you know, our overall unity is, is the real question. How does that affect us being unified with one another? And I'll let Chris go first, Professor Moreland. I do think that it's probably time for... Um, for those in the Protestant denominations to start really asking themselves a difficult question. Did Luther have any authority to remove what was had been decided on for more than a thousand years by both the East and the West? Um, I would say, though, that in terms of day-to-day issues being caused by the lack of those books, it's not super troublesome uh, on a day-to-day basis. It is an impediment. Uh, it is something that needs to be dealt with again, which we seem to be doing quite a lot of day, referring things to <laughs> a future ecumenical council. Um, yes. But 
That's for uh, smarter people. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And the thing is, I think, to be completely fair, maybe we in the Catholic Church should start asking questions about um, why we don't have Third Maccabees, perhaps. You know, we can, I think these things are, should be open for discussion. Um, with regards to purgatory, um, it is heavily dependent on Maccabees. Now, I would defer to my friends who are much more, um, who are even more biblically adroit, but I'm pretty sure that there is a Catholic defense that could be made of purgatory without using Maccabees. Yeah, I, I think if it was, I think if that it was that flimsy, that it would not have been a doctrine that would have been established. And I know that the, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the Orthodox, they don't call it purgatory, but there is a sort of liminal space, if I'm not mistaken. I will probably correct me on that. Um, so we, that's a challenge. We don't have a doctrine uh, like like purgatory, and certainly we have to like clarify for the listeners that the, the, when we're talking about purgatory, it's not necessarily a place. It's 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 a process in the Catholic tradition, um, and it's also not that you're, you know. I think there, there's a, a notion that those who are in this process of purgation in purgatory, uh, all of them are are heading to the kingdom. It's just the, the in that in between between uh, when someone dies and they enter the kingdom. But it's not like you can by praying for someone to remove them from purgatory so that they don't go to hell or something like that. It is the process that we have to we have to clarify that because it's kind of a misconception. In the Orthodox Church, there are uh, there are some. Uh, we call them theologumina, which are theological opinions that aren't doctrinized uh, or canonized doctrines uh, of this uh, these aerial tool houses where we go through a process of uh, it, 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 like we get like there's a demon of gluttony or a demon and we go through and we have to, before we can get to the kingdom of heaven we have to you know our whole life is weighed before us and stuff like that. I not an Orthodox. Christian who ascribes to that, I see it as very valuable in our moral, um, uh, ethical evaluation of ourselves here and now. If I am attached to something here and now, I will likely continue to be attached to that uh, throughout my life and into you know after I I, I I repose, and that might be drawing me away from God. It might be setting up some type of idol in the place of God if uh, if I'm not careful, and so. Um, I think that uh, in terms of the scripture, I would say I, I, w- I would agree with Professor Moreland that there that there is li- there is a far greater in their theological understanding of the idea of purgatory as the process, not necessarily a place. It could be a place, but it's a, it has the process beyond that scripture. Um, as for you know, the the other aspect of it is. We have to look at the context that this was considered scripture until this time. And so there's there's a lot of saying people would say, oh, but it, it contradicts what's in the Bible. And that's or it shouldn't be in the Bible. But the context is the Bible is a collection of books that was agreed upon as a whole to represent. And there are things in in lots of books of the Old Testament that are not spoken about in, in other books of the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And so we have to see the 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 scripture as a whole and we also have to see it in relationship to what gives it authority in the sense for i mean it's given divine authority because it is god breathed and and god continues to to inspire through it we also have to understand that it was decided upon by the church which was given authority to recognize that this is consistent with what has been what's been received 
um, because there were lots of letters. Paul wrote letters that we don't know. We have no idea where first or third uh -huh. Corinthians is because he's referring to a letter he wrote <laughs> yeah. in first Corinthians to one he wrote before. And he's right. He's referring to another letter that he wrote after first Corinthians. So there's a third Corinthians. And what we have is fourth <laughs> Corinthians. Um, yeah. You know, there's other letters. You know, there's a letter. I think he yeah, referenced letters allowed to say, allowed to say, and like he's, there's other letters that we have no idea about but these are what we have received uh and these are are good for the building up of the faithful person um they are they are um they they, they are of value to do that but we also have to recognize it is it is the church that has recognized it as consistent and it doesn't it, it doesn't stand on its own it doesn't contradict the scripture um, but we have to, we just have to contextualize this. So the question also becomes in, well, who, where does authority play in? Um, because that's another major issue for, uh, for unity on the larger scale, the longer term is where does authority come in, um, in the conversation? For us, Holy hmm. Scripture is a part of sacred tradition, holy tradition. Um, but so is, the, so are the ecumenical councils. So are, so is iconography, the writings of the church fathers and mothers. Um, and each of these are are uh, part of what we consider holy tradition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The Catholic Church has the magisterium. We have our own way of, uh, of facilitating uh, unity through the conciliar process, the synodal, the synodal tradition, uh, local local synods, and uh, and kind of a broader regional synods, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that would be a, a, a that would be where this question of scripture also takes a, a, a um, it takes a. a it would also need to be discussed upon yeah. also uh, doctrines about scripture, uh, like sola scriptura and stuff like that. We would have to, you know, re uh, we would we would have to enter into dialogue about that because the sola scriptura isn't necessarily uh, consistent. Uh, we would say uh, in the Orthodox Church, I'm sure the Catholic Church would agree, it's not consistent with the received tradition, um, and it's certainly not consistent necessarily with scripture itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to um. If TJ will let me, I'd like to kind of speak Maybe. to this from a Protestant perspective while I have uh, two people who can kind of hold me accountable. Um, so from from my understanding, and, and first I'd like to ask Father Jonathan, because I'm not sure about this one. Um, your church's view that these books are good for reading, um, does that phrase come from where St. Jerome, whenever the scripture was originally canonized, said that, these Bible, these books were not good for doctrine, but they were good for reading. Does that come from him, or I would say it's probably in part. That's why kind of the terminology given to it. I would say, um, is it's a Greek term? I'm not sure if it would that definitely come only yeah. from him. Um, uh, but we also have to be careful because you know sometimes we agree with Jerome on one <laughs> thing, but not on other things. Not, not us, yeah. but you know, people yeah. that would use him. To I do. <laughs> articulate. Yeah. I agree with him on a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Um, I think on this, I, I probably agree with him. Um, I certainly think it is much easier to understand the gospels where Jesus comes into the story. If you've read and understood the Maccabees, but as a Protestant, I wouldn't call them scripture because we don't call that scripture. Um, Largely because of the doctrine, Father Jonathan was talking about sola scriptura. Uh, for most Protestants, we believe the scripture was initiated by God. You know, we don't give any authority to the church itself or tradition. So we think the spirit is what gives that. Um, the question then comes in where naturally in the fifth century, the church is the one who decided that this is it. So uh, it, 
it gets really kind of hazy of, well, where did that authority come from? Did it come directly from God or did God give the authority to the church only in that moment, but not other moments? And it's, um, honestly, guys, it is a very hard topic. Um, when you come to some doctrines, uh, like, um, purgatory, I, I believe that the, a lot of misconceptions of purgatory happen because of the divine comedy, great book, but you know, he painted as a place. So a lot of Protestants think that, uh, Basically, the idea of purgatory demeans the gospel because you're saying that people can, you know, neither be saved or condemned. They could just go to this middle place, which is not what anyone is saying. Um, you still might have problems with it, but those problems should not be that. <laughs> and um, that, that's sort of my take. I, I could just keep talking. There's so much more we could say, but uh, no, we like to end yes, our episode you know. <laughs> by asking if our guests had a uh, if you guys could just give our listeners just something tangible. They've got a lot of information downloaded today. <laughs> uh, what's something practical that one of our listeners could do, any of our listeners could do, <laughs> when this podcast ends that would help better kind of uh, bridge the church, you know, um, create better unity by doing this thing? Um, what's something they could do? Uh, Father Jonathan, you've done this before. You care to go again? Sure. No repeat answers. Um <laughs> I would say that if they could leave listening to this uh, episode and, and kind of the, the, the whole project itself uh, with the recognition that they, they need not to or they should not, ought not assume that they know what another person's belief or experience is, um, meet the person, engage, learn from them, understand why they believe what they did. Uh, if you can do that through conversation, through relationship building, that is the starting point for unity because we cannot be in in unity with someone that we don't have a relationship with. Um, it's a non-starter if we're not actually in relationship. Yeah. Um, Professor Moreland. Chris. I would, I would say that something tangible that we can do is that we can hold our co-religionists, our you know the people that are in our denominations and our communities accountable for when they say things that are uncharitable and untruthful about our our other denominations because there are disagreements. I am not naive and I don't believe in religious indifferentism, but <laughs> if we are going to disagree, let us disagree on reality and not on what's been given to us either through maybe family lore or even worse popular culture mm -hmm. yeah yeah for example if you've listened to this podcast and you heard somebody <laughs> criticize catholics for telling people they can go to purgatory you're now obligated to say something about it <laughs> yeah. that makes us popular culture we we made oh, it no. <laughs> oh no uh, uh, so two good answers. Uh, um, can I can I add on to that? Uh, what we were talking about earlier, I want to remind the listeners that when we said being the church together kind of lets some of these misconceptions peel away. Reach out to a church that, you know, if you're Protestant, reach out to a Catholic or Orthodox church. If you're Orthodox, reach out to a Protestant or Catholic church. Find something that somebody that not at your church is doing, a food bank or something, and just be a part of it. I really feel like that's a worthwhile practice. Um, I got to do a lot of that with Sister Rose at UNCW, and it was it was great. 
All right. Uh, so, Chris, if we all did that, if we all started calling out misinformation when we saw it, uh, how do you think we would see the church change or society's perception of it? Well, I think we would be able to present a more united front and be able to we be able to present a more united front to the challenges that we're facing. And I think, just like you said, uh, Joel, that we could cooperate more on the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, which could help transform society. And, um, you know, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, Father Jonathan, I think that we would see. um I would hope that we would see people's attitudes changed and, and begin to see the, the, the shared, uh, where, what we share and have points of real relationality and relationship. And I think that, um, I think going along with the same thing, point calling out the misconceptions, but also being able to interact with someone and also better understanding someone's experience will also give you, allow you to uh, call out those. Conception, and it would, it would. My hope would be that it would lead to um, just naturally lead to to uh, to more to more openness and hospitality towards one another and unity. Unity, yeah, that would be nice. But uh, so that that's it for all the all the real podcast questions. Uh, we always like to end it with a God moment segment. Uh, which you've done a few times now, Father Jonathan. Uh, but it's just a a minute, just a, a moment where we like to share what God has been up to with us recently, whether it's a blessing or a challenge, a moment of worship, any of those things. And I always like to make Josh go first. Uh, it gives me more time to think. So For a second, I thought you were going to say you were going to tell me that I've done this a few times before. And I was like, I mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, man, so so many i, I got to pick one cuz i got to use use some for later <laughs> um i went to a friend of ours wedding david bazaar has been on the podcast before but it was like episode 3 or something way early on and um at his wedding a friend of ours a uh, pastor mark was there and he spoke to me and my wife and we talked to my wife and he just he, he gave me a huge compliment where he said um that i've always been one of the most hospitable people that he knew and I mean, it was just one of those things where I was like, whoa, because I never think of myself that way. But um, I don't know. It, it was humbling and um, it really blessed my spirit to hear someone say something kind about me. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, for my God moment segment, I, I there's a few things, a bunch of stuff rattling around in my head. Uh. ESPN just gave me the notification that Derek Chauvin was guilty, found guilty. I don't know why ESPN did that, but uh, <laughs> it did it. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm going to go with, uh, I've been searching for an apartment recently to move into uh, with a couple of friends of mine, and we found a really, really promising place. Uh, we like it a lot. It's cheap, and it's central, so, uh, you know, that's just something that's awesome. Uh, it's going to be really helpful in a season of change to, you know, have somewhere to be and you know, actually being able to go there is really what I'm looking forward to. So, uh, Chris, do you have a, a God moment for us? Your your first ever whole church podcast God moment. <laughs> uh, 
I would say that a really interesting development that happened recently is a very, very close friend of mine who came from a fundamentalist family and they used religion as a form of abuse. And so she was very rightfully so um, hesitant about religion. But she came with me to the Tridentine Mass recently and she was really moved by this because in her words, they don't yell at you. And I said, oh, no, we don't do that there. But it was, you know, and I'm not demanding in any way, shape or form that she convert. I just wanted her to see that there is a different approach, that there is a different way. And that Christianity, this religion of more than a billion people looks very differently. There's a lot of diversity in it. So it was really nice for her to see a part of Christianity that was not traumatic. Right. Yeah. That's also awesome. always good. All right. Uh, Father Jonathan, do you have your third or fourth God segment for, I don't know. You've done this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, there was a, a, a night uh, before liturgy uh, on once uh, a Sunday, a couple of weeks ago. And the week just got away from me. So I didn't have, uh, something very well prepared to speak about, uh, for my sermon. Now, because I do the first liturgy and it's a little bit condensed because we have a service right afterwards, I usually don't speak for a, a very long amount of time, but I just, uh, I made the sign of the cross and I walked out and I just started, uh, speaking a little bit about what we read from the scripture and, uh, a little bit about like the, the feast that we were celebrating that day. And, uh, I got an email from uh, a parishioner who said that her children were greatly appreciated what I had to say and it spoke to them in a way that they needed to hear. And, uh, so that God moment would, would be that I am so grateful that the Holy Spirit spoke through me and, uh, and it wasn't me speaking out of my, my backside, uh, right. when I was trying to give, um, give a word of encouragement to the people entrusted by care. I don't always, I don't, I usually prepare, <laughs> but the, the, the past few weeks, cause we're right in the middle of Lent, uh, right in the midst of Lent and, and everything. Um, I just wasn't able to, to get something pulled together in the, the more polished form. So thank God for, for speaking, uh, through this, uh, this unworthy vessel. Right. And you know, kids never lie. So they, uh, not when it's about, I mean, not about that kind of, yeah, they tell you how it is. Yeah, but uh, so I uh, want to thank all of our listeners for listening to this episode. And uh, we wanted to give a special thank you to our patron patrons. Uh, you know, we couldn't do this without you, uh, at least not uh, at this level. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please consider sharing it with a friend. It's a it's a great way to get us out there and spread the message. That's oh yeah, and. Uh, other than that, uh, where where could our listeners find more of you guys or hear more from you? Do they gotta just sit tight till you're back on the show? Or <laughs> um, so uh, you can follow uh, the ministry at Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Cathedral uh, in Charlotte. Uh, you can find us on uh, YouTube. Uh, I, I'm sure you guys can find the the handle. You can put it in the description or something like that. Uh, we, 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 uh, record our sermons. We record our services. If you ever want to, you know, see what an Orthodox, uh, church service is like without the shock of walking in for the first time, you can watch it. Uh, you can hear some of the sermons that I give. Father Basilios, uh, our head priest, Father Christian, our, our, I think he's been on the show before. Yes. Um, and, um, uh, and then I also do like a, a daily reflection, uh, on, on the life of the saint that we celebrate on that day. So you can hear like, what 
ways in which very different types of people, bishops and lay people, and uh, there was a, a cabinet maker and a gardener who became saints, and, and just seeing how people awesome. lived their life of faith uh, in, in a particular context or in a particular circumstance, and maybe you'll find a deep connection. Uh, we learn from our brothers and sisters who uh, who live their lives of faith, and that's one way to do it. Uh, and you can also follow us on Facebook. We, we publish it also on Facebook. Um, and we also do some uh, Facebook Live things. If you follow us, you can see when we do that. I would also say that a good place to go would be to follow the Facebook page of UNCW's Catholic Campus Ministry, the Newman right. Center, which Sister Rose is the director of. And we actually, because of COVID, have been broadcasting our services. So if anyone listening would like to see what a Catholic service, a Catholic liturgy, Mass, looks like, um, particularly during the COVID era, we're doing math outside, responsibly, socially distanced, and I think it would be a really educational experience. Uh, you'd get to see Sister Rose on there, and if I'm serving as lector, then you'll see me. But and yeah, our, our worth it to me. Father Greg was amazing. So right, awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, some future guests for the podcast. We want to give you a quick rundown. Our good friend Chris Brissy, who has been on before, Pastor Chris Brissy. Uh, Christian Taylor, the director of The Girl Who Wore Freedom, uh, which is coming out soon. or yeah, End of May. End of May. Uh, good movie. She let us watch it early. It's, oh, yes. yeah. Uh, Anglican chaplain Steve Lockwell. And, of course, at the end of this season, season one, uh, we are going to have Francis Chan on this show. Yeah, mm-hmm. who just uh, hasn't agreed to a time or schedule or actually agreed at all yet, so... Right, yeah, that'll be fine though. Yeah, we are <laughs> we're willing it into existence. Yeah, so, it'll happen. <laughs> thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you are a patron, hop on over to Patreon and check out our last little bit that we do, uh, which is just behind that little paywall. Throw us a dollar, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Uh, we hope you're back next week, and uh, have a good one. Go and be blessed.